Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome to Her Half of History, an evergreen podcast. The polls are still open, my friends, if you would like to vote on the topic for Series 12. Stay tuned after the show for the details. Meanwhile, the current series is The History of Girlhood, and this is Episode 11.12, Coming of Age, A History of Puberty. All good things come to an end, and girlhood is no exception. But there is zero consensus on when that happens. Young people, as I'm sure you know, tend to think that it happens a good deal earlier than their parents do. The law in my current location is more concrete, but it still changes depending on what you think adulthood means. It's age 14 to work part-time, with some exceptions, 16 to work full-time or drive, 17 to consent to sex with an adult, 18 to vote, 21 to drink, and 26 to be kicked off your parents' health insurance. Historically, people were no more certain about when girlhood ended, but one potentially convenient marker was puberty. When I first envisioned this episode, I thought I would be researching puberty rituals. You know, the kind where the boy has to do something to prove his courage or fortitude or endurance in order to be accepted as a man, only for girls. But the results on that surprised me a little. I did find a ritual in ancient Greece. The city of Brauron is about 20 miles or 32 kilometers from Athens, and it was sacred to Artemis, goddess of the hunt and protector of children and young unmarried women. Athenian girls between the ages of 10 and 15 went to Brauron to do a ceremony called acting the she-bear. Bears figure in several Greek myths, and they were associated with the savage, the wild, and the dangerous on one hand, and on the other hand, they were also associated with good maternal care. They have a dual nature. They go into hibernation alone and emerge months later as full-fledged mothers. You can see the association with coming of age. The girl goes into the ritual as a maiden, partially wild. She comes out as an adult, ready to take a role of maternal responsibility within her community. Acting the she-bear meant to wear a saffron-colored dress and perform dances and sacred foot races, plus a mystery rite and a goat sacrifice. The temple at Brauron is still there. Archaeologists have unearthed hundreds of vases with scenes of the girls, and there are other temples that look similar elsewhere in Greece, suggesting that this ceremony may have been for many girls, not just those that lived locally to Brauron. Now, you may have noticed a couple of things about acting the she-bear. 
For one thing, my description wasn't very detailed, and that's not me summing it up for the sake of time. That's the historical record not giving us any more details than what I've just said. Those who left the records were largely men. And one way to interpret the silence is that in a patriarchal society, the girls' rituals were beneath the notice of the more literate men. But another way to interpret it is to say that the girls' rituals were sacred, private, not to be shared with the uninitiated. In a sense, they may have been above the notice of the more literate men. A lot depends on your point of view. Personally, I'm going to hope for straight-up male ignorance rather than ritual non-existence because acting the she-bear is the only ritual I have to tell you about for a long, long time. There is certainly no Roman equivalent. Not that got recorded, anyway. There is a tiny hint that there may have been more of a ritual than Roman authors wrote down. The hint comes from the later Christian writers decrying the old practice of adolescent girls dedicating their childhood dolls to Venus. That's idolatry and paganism, and so definitely not okay, according to the Christian writers. But since the pagan authors never wrote it down at all, it's hard to know just what happened or how often or whether it was part of any larger ceremony. If it was part of a larger ceremony, then said larger ceremony was probably the girl's wedding. Weddings were the only publicly sanctioned and recorded rituals in which Roman girls regularly participated. And for many girls, it was practically the same thing as a puberty ritual because puberty and marriage happened at roughly the same time. Which brings me to the second thing I noticed about the she-bears at Browron. According to the bear comparison, girls go straight from being half-savage children to being mothers. Surely there should be a stage at which they are adult women, but not mothers? And when does puberty happen anyway? As I said, this ritual was for girls between 10 and 15, according to my main source on this, though I read other estimates that suggested younger. These sources don't say anything at all about how a family would decide when in that age range to send a girl. But judging by the fact that everything I've got for the next 2,000 years centers on when a girl begins menstruating, that might be a good guess as to how it was decided. Personally, I was a bit annoyed by that. I would like to think that coming of age involves a little bit more than just bleeding on a schedule. After all, menstruation is something that happens to you, whether you want it to or not. It seemed quite different than a boy proving his strength or courage or whatever by doing something of his own free will. However, that is me proving my own cultural baggage and biases, as you may see in the rest of this episode. Anyway, if I am going to grudgingly admit that starting menstruation is the most obvious and easily datable point about puberty, then there is some question as to when that actually happened. Menarche is the technical term for it, when the menstrual cycle begins as opposed to menopause, which is when it ends. A quick Google search tells me that the current average age of menarche is 12.4 years old, or 13.8 or 11.9, depending on the study and who it includes. There is also a lot of angst about the fact that the age is falling. I have no comment on the health concerns or the various theories about why or even whether that's a problem, except to say that it seems to have varied in the past, too. There is archaeological evidence that the age varied based on nutrition. If there was a famine on, menarche was delayed. When times were good, it came earlier. If you, like me, are wondering how there could possibly be archaeological evidence of menarche, 
Well, it turns out that menarche is tightly synchronized with skeletal development. Who knew? Anyway, researchers on this are looking at bones to make that call. As for the occasional written comment, Soranus, the Greco-Roman doctor and author of gynecology, said it happens at age 13 or 14. The 14th century author of Of the Secrets of Women said it happened at 12 or 13 or 14. The 17th century midwife Jane Sharp said it often starts at 14, but could be younger. She knows of reports of girls as young as 5 or 8 starting their monthly cycles. There is indirect evidence that African-American slaves in the U.S. started at about age 15. In the 1830s and 40s in Northern and Western Europe and in the U.S., the average age is reported to be a whopping 17.5, followed by a gradual decline decade by decade ever since and still continuing on today. Notice that 17.5 is much higher than what Serranus said about Roman girls. Every modern population with an average that high is severely malnourished, which might tell you something about all those girls in factories and mills from episode 11.11. But it is important to note that the data are sketchy in all of this. Nobody was collecting rigorous data on this at the time. For most of history, they weren't even collecting rigorous data about birth dates, much less menarche ages. They may not have known how old they were. By the 19th century, propriety forbade mention of such an embarrassing subject. But earlier ages did not have that problem. They were quite frank about it, with a wealth of vocabulary for describing it. And really, it's hard to imagine how it could be concealed in a world with tight quarters, little privacy, no disposable period products, and no regular trash removal service even if you did want to dispose of a little unmentionable something. The Old Testament is often credited with being the first misogynistic text to shame girls for something that a healthy female body is supposed to do. Leviticus 15 has 14 verses on just how unclean menstruating women are, and how everything she touches is unclean, and how no one should have sex with her, and so on and so forth. You might wonder how, given all of this, a young Jewish girl is supposed to feel about being sick of the flowers which is the terminology that the King James Bible uses. It certainly doesn't sound like adulthood is all that it was cracked up to be. Jewish girls didn't even get to dance like she-bears in saffron-colored dresses. However, the claim of misogyny here is a little unfair. The Bible has plenty of other instances of misogyny, but this isn't one, because the previous 18 verses specify exactly the same thing for males and any ejaculations they might have. There is no trace of embarrassment on either side. If you can pull away from the shaming involved in modern Western culture, the whole chapter seems less about shame than it is about hygiene. Basically, it says if your body is emitting something, anything, then wash yourselves and the clothes. That message doesn't sound so bad. It was in medieval times that the message became that menstruation was not just a hygiene issue, but that it was polluting and evil in and of itself, in some other way than just cleanliness. It was even equated with Eve's curse for being first to eat of the forbidden apple in the Garden of Eden, even though the Bible clearly states that Eve's curse was pain in childbirth. That chapter doesn't even mention menstruation. There's a lot more that could be said about the history of menstruation, but most of it is not specific to girls at puberty, so I'm going to save it for a future series on the history of women's bodies and focus just on the menarche part. 
I had to mention the evil and polluting bit because it was an idea that took hold so well that it colors our perception of every other menarchy ritual, even the ones that come from totally different cultures who never heard of Jews or their holy books. If you are thinking about menstruation as an entirely negative thing, and you are an outsider to the culture you are studying, then you can see why the mostly male anthropologists can write sentences like, Girls at Menarchy were, quote, forced into menstrual huts, enduring days, sometimes weeks of fasting, end quote. That sentence was in one of my sources referring to Native Americans of the Creek tribe in the southeastern United States. Seclusion and fasting are two of the most common forms of menstrual rituals. They are found all over the world, and they are condemned as cruel, torturous, and paternalistic from a feminist point of view. But contrast that with the account of Marie from the Ojibwe tribe that lives around the Great Lakes in the United States and Canada. At puberty, Marie's mother cordoned off part of their house behind a curtain where she was to stay for ten days. She was given a piece of scone and a glass of water morning and night. But she wasn't alone, because during the day older women came to teach her. They talked to her about crocheting and knitting, but also how to cook wild geese, deer, and beaver. They were passing on to her the shared knowledge of the tribe. All this was to last ten days, but on day nine her older brother showed up, in ignorance. He had heard she was not in school, that she was ill, and he was concerned. He insisted on coming in, and he gave her a hug. This broke her ceremony because she was supposed to have no contact with men, and, quote, Marie lamented that she did not finish her seclusion, as she had just begun to dream and have visions of ancestral visitors, end quote. Whether you believe she was having visions of ancestors is not as important as that Marie believed it. Her menarchy ritual was not a deprivation she was tortured into. It was a gateway, not only to full adult membership with the women of her tribe, but also to a spiritual world. And she was sorry to have had it messed up. My point here is, it's dangerous to interpret a ritual from the outside. It may look very different than it does from the inside. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create 
and grew modern whales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. I have next to nothing on menarche in the other big historical cultures like China. Only a few references to say that menstrual blood was polluting, vile, and dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And maybe it was so viewed in China and other cultures like it. Or maybe the male and Western authors available to me are interpreting it from a long and distinguished history of not talking about stuff like that. I'm really not sure. What does exist in the scholarship available to me is mostly from anthropologists rather than historians, and that means we are getting into material that is actually pretty recent. For example, over in the Congo, Mbuti girls at Menarche were decorated with vines. The boys, who were in an initiation of their own, were expected to reach them, even though the girls were guarded by village women armed with sticks and stones, which they were absolutely prepared to use. If the boys survived the gauntlet, their reward was that the girls themselves administered the beatings. Melanesian girls received tattoos at Menarche. I do not know how old these ceremonies are, but it's possible that they are extremely old, or at least that something similar was taking place. Meanwhile, in Western society, not only was there no ceremony, there might not even be much basic information. As early as 1769, an English medical book complained that, quote, it is the duty of mothers and those who are entrusted with the education of girls to instruct them in the conduct and management of themselves at this critical period of their lives. False modesty, inattention, and ignorance of what is beneficial or hurtful at this time are the sources of many diseases and misfortunes in life, which a few sensible lessons from an experienced matron might have prevented. End quote. The evidence on this is sketchy because the few sensible lessons were all oral, and this medical observation was anecdotal. No doubt many mothers and older sisters did talk. No doubt the hygienic side was obvious to anyone who lived in close quarters and helped with the laundry. But at least some girls, probably the better-off ones who didn't have to help with laundry duty, were now growing up in ignorance. In 1851, one physician estimated that 25% of all girls had their first period without knowing about the subject at all. In Victorian times, doctors realized that women, who were now largely literate, would be happy to buy a book on the subject rather than actually talk to someone about it. The medical guides were aimed at mothers, and many of them stressed the need for mothers to be educated on the subject first themselves. The implication is that nobody taught them what they needed to know, so it's not like they were well prepared to teach their own daughters, or at least the doctors wanted them to think they weren't well prepared. These books, written by men, laid great stress on the idea that menstruation was a sign of women's inferiority, that it left girls weak and vulnerable to disease, and that a menstruating daughter was to be excused from any taxing duties, such as her education or a job, so she could, quote, yield herself to the feeling of malaise, which usually overcomes her during this period, end quote. Another doctor went so far as to assure his readers that even a few days of work during menstruation often resulted in sudden death. If you are wondering how this fits into my previous two episodes on girls at work, the answer is, it doesn't. In hundreds of pages of material on girls as maids, girls as factory workers, girls as agricultural laborers, there was not one word on how they managed their periods. One thing I am absolutely sure of 
They weren't yielding themselves to feelings of malaise, and they weren't excused from taxing duties. This is a significant class divide, and it served to keep upper-class women helpless at the same time as it served to keep lower-class women unable to get health care they actually needed. It was not until after World War I, when a small but growing number of female physicians turned to the subject, that the discourse began to change. Female doctors began encouraging open education and discussion of the rather obvious fact that a great many women work straight through their periods without anything disastrous happening. The new general advice was to encourage good sanitation and stop thinking of it as an illness. It was instead just a normal part of growing up. Girls needed rational explanations, not hysterics and fear-mongering. Which is an improvement, I think you'll agree. But there is still room for complaint. Discussion grew gradually more open over the 20th century and into the 21st, but it still revolves around hygiene and concealment and negative symptoms. The rational discussions are not a coming-of-age welcome-to-womanhood ritual. The anthropologist Kate Clancy wrote, quote, If all we ever learn is that menstrual cycles make us hormonal, irritable, bloated, angry, depressed, anxious, or in pain, is it any wonder that that's the primary way many of us perceive our experiences? End quote. Contrast that with the Hoopa tribe of northwestern California, where a flower dance was performed by women of the tribe for all young women at Menarche as a celebration. Under extreme societal pressure, the flower dance died out, but in recent years it has been painstakingly reconstructed. Or contrast the entire Western experience of puberty with a ceremony I can describe in more detail. The Mescalero Apache live in south-central New Mexico. As far as I can tell, their puberty rites for girls never died out, and it is of sufficient importance to them that they describe it on their official website, not just as a ceremony for monarchical girls, but for the whole tribe. They do not, in case you are wondering, mention any equivalent coming-of-age ceremony for their boys. Their account does tally with my main source on this, which is an account from 1984, written as a joint effort between two professors, both female, and one an Apache woman herself, the other not, so you are getting both an inside and an outside view. An Apache girls' ceremony is planned a year in advance, with planning starting just after menarche. They need a year because the family must collect the sacred pollen, engage singers, engage a sponsor or medicine woman, and prepare a doe-skin dress with beadwork and tassels. When all is ready, the clans gather, and over four days the girl is blessed with the pollen, and many songs are sung, between 48 and 64 each night, while the men of the tribe dance to represent the mountain spirits. During the ceremony, the girl ceremonially becomes a goddess, white-painted woman, and so she also blesses the members of her tribe with the full power of the goddess. Many gifts are also exchanged, and there is feasting. On the morning after the fourth night, the singer paints the sun in clay and rubs it onto the girl. She is painted in red and white, then led out of the ceremonial teepee to run eastward toward the rising sun to a private teepee where she meditates on her experience for a further four days. When she emerges, she is no longer a goddess, but she is also no longer a girl. She has been sung and danced into a new stage of life, and the tribe welcomes her as a woman. My sources today are all over the place. 
but the most recent of them is Period by anthropologist Kate Clancy. Visit the website herhalfofhistory.com to see more sources, plus pictures and a transcript, and a link to where you can see a small video about the Mescalero Apache ritual. The poll for the topic of Series 12 is available to Into History subscribers on the Discord server. It is also available on Patreon, where you do not actually have to be a subscriber to vote. Links are available on my website or in the show notes. As an experiment, I am also going to try placing the poll in Spotify attached to this episode. We're going to see how that goes. There are really so many ways to do a poll. I was trying to keep it simple, and I'm still not 100% sure of the best way to approach it. Preferably not a million ways. The choices are women take flight, such as the balloonist Sophie Blanchard, Amelia Earhart, and the Mercury 13 women, or last queen of her country, such as Boudicca of the Iseni, Liliua Kalani of Hawaii, and Shlomtzion of Judea. And I think I could even get away with throwing Marie Antoinette in there. We'll see. Or spiritual leaders, such as the Muslim Sufi saint, St. Clair of Assisi, counterpart of St. Francis, and Anne Hutchinson the dissenter who got herself banished from the Puritan Massachusetts Bay Colony. At the moment, on Patreon, Women Take Flight and Last Queen of Her Country are in a dead heat. But Last Queen is winning on Into History. If you would like to change or confirm that, get your vote in by Monday, January 9th, as that is when I will close this poll. In the meantime, there is one more episode in the history of girlhood. It's the discovery of teenagers. Don't miss it. Thanks. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.